If you will, turn with me to Genesis 11. We'll be in Genesis 11, starting in verse 10, and really going through verse 32. I will go into Genesis 12, 1 through 3 to a degree. Well, actually, all the way down to probably verse 5. But really going to be focused on Genesis eleven ten through 32. As you're coming to Genesis eleven ten, thus far we've traveled from the creation of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 to the covenant with Adam and Eve and their relation together in Genesis 2 to the breaking of that covenant in the fall in Adam and Eve to the temptation of the serpent in Genesis 3 to the story of the outcome of that fall, the curse that God has dropped on man in our judgment for sin and the promise that God made to man to send a seed of the woman to save us to the beginning of the propagation of man and his increasing wickedness as we see Cain kill Abel and then God give Adam another son, Seth. And then we see Seth's line propagate and Cain's line propagate quite fruitfully to the point we come to Genesis 6 where man has descended into millions of people who are wicked. And the Lord then judges man in his increasing wickedness with a flood judgment, covenanting with Noah that he'll save him and his family on the ark of salvation and bring them through that. And then they come through that flood judgment. They land, if you will, on the mountains that are just at the southern part of Armenia. They land there. And then while there, Noah offers an atoning sacrifice, knowing it's the only way he can be in the presence of God. And God then gives obligations to the covenant that he's made with Noah and a sign to the covenant he's made with Noah. Noah is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Noah has been given a sign of a rainbow. So he knows that God is going to remember and keep his promises. And then we see Noah's fall into sin. And Noah's three sons and how they respond to that. Ham being the one who wants to expose and humiliate his father in his sin. Shem and Japheth who want to cover it. And then Noah makes a curse upon Ham's line and gives blessings to Shem and Japheth's line. And then we read about their lines, their genealogy, as they're fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. And we come to Ham's line leading the building of a city and a tower, Babel. And God comes in judgment against man once again and disperses them according to various languages in various lands and various nations. So we come to the end of that story of the Tower of Babel. And at that point, I want you to understand we've covered over 2,000 years of world history. Over 2,000 years of world history arranged around genealogies. This is the generations of. These are the generations of. So there's a genealogy and a story and a genealogy and a story and a genealogy and a story. And these genealogies and stories, actually, if you consider you're covering over 2,000 years of world history, are relatively compact. You get 2,000 plus years of world history in just over 10 chapters. 
Thematically, we have seen man who was created for the blessing of dwelling with the Lord forsake the Lord while striving to maintain that blessing that can only be found in him. And with that, we come to Genesis 11 and verse 10. So let's look there as we return to the genealogy of Shem, which was already given once as one of the three sons of Noah, but is picked up again. So look there at Genesis 11.10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered a parkshod, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he had fathered a parkshod 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When a parkshod had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And a parkshod lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. Remember, Eber is the Hebrews. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug. And Ru lived after he fathered Sarug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah, a second genealogy. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Let me pray. Father, we pray that we would receive this for what it is. The word of the Lord. We confess that as we come to genealogies, Father, that you have arranged and that are quite important in Scripture, we tend to breeze over them, find them dull and uninteresting, and spend little time meditating upon them as your inspired, inerrant, infallible, and useful word. A word that sanctifies us. We pray that we would receive it as such, that we would understand this story that drives us to Abram, to Abraham, the father of the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, I said just before I read this passage that Genesis 1 through 10, really 11, 9, is driving you through 2,000 plus years of world history and thematically driving you from man who's created to dwell with God and receive really what is the ultimate blessing of being with God to seeing man forsake the Lord while striving for the blessing that can only be retained in him. That's essentially the theme we've seen. Man wants the blessings that only God offers, but man does not want the Lord. Man constructs his own counterfeit offerings, if you will, in the city of Cain and the Tower of Babel, the city and Tower of Babel. Man wants glory and power and immortality. And he will get it for himself with his own technology, city building, and false religion. It seems to this point that the whole world is traveling further and further east of Eden. Remember, that's a theme in Genesis. To move east of Eden is to move further from where God dwells and further under the judgment of sin and death. Further into the grasp of Satan. And what's our hope in all of this in the first 11 chapters? Our hope is that at man's first fall, God promised a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He promised, if you will, a second Adam, a godly man who would come and crush Satan and save God's people. But with the world growingly becoming corrupt, Growingly removed far from God, where will this man be found? And this drives us to Abram or Abraham. Now, here's my contention. This whole book of Genesis, all of these genealogies are arranged by Moses to drive us to this man. To Abraham. Genesis 1 through 11.9 covers over 2,000 years of world history. And we call it the primeval period. But Genesis 12 or really 11.10 through 50 covers the period from Abraham through his grandson Jacob. We call it the patriarchal period. So 11 chapters on the whole history of the world for over 2,000 years and over 39 chapters, the rest of the book, on this one man and his family. So who is this man, Abram or Abraham? That's what we're looking at this morning. Who is Abraham? And we're answering that question from the genealogies. In fact, we're going to answer that question in two parts from the two genealogies that we read here. Here's the first answer. Abraham is the son of Adam and the son of Noah. We're going to see that in 11.10 through 26. So Genesis 11, verse 10 through 26. Abraham is the son of Adam and the son of Noah. And then, secondly, we're going to see that Abraham is, now here's the big claim, you ready? Abraham is the father of the Christian faith. So he's the son of Adam and Noah and the father of Christianity. We're going to see that 
in chapter 11, verses 27 through 32, and then some corresponding texts. So let's look at the first claim. Abraham is the son of Adam and the son of Noah. Look with me at Genesis 11.10. These are the generations of Shem. These are the generations of Shem. This genealogy is a turning point in Genesis. It's a turning point in Genesis. We are turning from the primeval period to the patriarchal period. Shem's genealogy was already shown in Genesis 10, if you remember that. But when we came to Eber and his two sons, Eber being from the line of Shem, Eber being the word from which we get the Hebrews, when we come to Eber and his two sons, Joktan and Peleg, in Genesis 10, we only learn the genealogy of Joktan. We do not learn the genealogy of Peleg. Peleg's line is left out of that genealogy. It's actually left over, if you will, till this point. See, after the city and tower of Babel had fallen, after God had dispersed man across the earth, which is what Peleg's name means, to be divided or dispersed, after that had happened, then, then we get to Peleg's line. Shem through Peleg. Look at 11, chapter 11 and verse 16. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. Now notice verse 18. We don't go to Joktan. Joktan is left in chapter 10. We go to Peleg. Verse 18. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And now we're going through Peleg's line. Look down at verse 26 because we are now shown why. Why is Peleg's line reserved for this point? Reserved for after the fall of Babel, the city and the tower. Look at verse 26. It'll tell you why. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Why is Peleg's line reserved, if you will, Shem's line through Peleg? Why is it reserved for this point? Because we're being driven to Terah from whom Abram or Abraham will come. This genealogy is being shown a second time to show that God's purposes to bring the seed of the woman have not been thwarted by Babel, by the sin and confusion and pride that man threw himself into. It has not been stopped. In other words, God's covenant of grace made at Genesis 3.15, will not be overthrown by man's commitment to wickedness. It will not. Let me provide three evidences of that gracious purpose in this genealogy. I want to provide you the evidence. It's a nice claim to make. How do I know it's true? Let me provide some evidence. First line of evidence. Moses is employing a genealogy to demonstrate that Abraham is the son of Noah and the son of Adam. The genealogy matches the form of the genealogy of Genesis 5. Look at Genesis 11, for example, verse 10 and 11. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered a parkshod, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he had fathered a parkshod 500 years, 
and had other sons and daughters. You guys saw that when I read through the text, that formula. He fathered this person. He lived after that person for so long. He fathered other sons and daughters. This is matching the form of genealogy in Genesis 5. So go back there briefly. Keep your hand in Genesis 11. And look at Genesis 5 and verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years. And he died. Now note this. This genealogy is giving us a parallel to that genealogy. That genealogy in Genesis 5 was showing us that after the fall of man, man is still being fruitful and multiplying. That is the point of saying, and he had other sons and daughters. But that genealogy is also demonstrating to us the curse of death. He had other sons and daughters, and he died. Now here's the variation. Genesis 10, the genealogy there, does not follow that formula at all. But Genesis 11 goes back to the Genesis 5 formula. When he was this age, he fathered this person. He had other sons and daughters, and he lived this many years. It never says he died. And it's pointing you to a kind of hopefulness of life coming through this line. Now, this genealogy is showing us shorter lifespans as well and younger ages of fathering. And the reason is we're transitioning from the primeval period to the patriarchal period to a world more like our own. But the way it's constructed is like Genesis 5 with the caveat that we're not emphasizing death that comes because of sin, which leads us into Genesis 6, but we're emphasizing the fruitfulness in life that's going to come through Abraham's line. In Genesis 5, further, well, let me put it this way. In Genesis 5, we have a pattern of ten generations followed by three sons. From Adam to Noah is ten generations. We're not going to count them right now. Ten generations from Adam to Noah. And then Noah has how many sons? Three, and Noah at the end of that ten generations, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In Genesis 11, ten and following, we also have a pattern of ten generations, followed by three sons. Followed by three sons. Look at Genesis 5.32 briefly. 5.32, I'm going to show you this. We won't count the ten sons, but we'll look here. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem will be the line, will be the son through whom the seed of the woman comes. Blessed be the God of Shem. Ten generations, three sons in the tenth. Now, go to Genesis 11 and verse 26, because there's ten generations from Shem, the son of Noah, to Terah, followed by three sons, 11.26. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Just as Shem, the first son, was the seed of the woman, the line through whom he comes, so now Abram's line is the one who, through whom the seed of the woman is going to come. So you have ten generations 
from Adam to Noah and his three sons, one of whom is Shem. And you have ten generations from Shem to Terah and his three sons, the first of whom is Abram. Incidentally, you have three sons of Adam, three sons of Noah, and then three sons of Terah. Adam and Noah and Terah each have three sons. And in each case, one from whom the seed of the woman is coming. Adam has Cain, Abel, and Seth. Seth is the one through whom the seed of the woman is coming. Noah has Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem is the one through whom the seed of the woman is coming. Terah has Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Abram is the one through whom the seed of the woman is coming. Now, it is this genealogy, actually, in chapter 11 that's picked up by Luke in his gospel. So, turn with me to Luke. Keep your hand here in Genesis 11. And turn with me to Luke chapter 3. After all, we are celebrating the first advent, the first coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we may as well turn to the genealogy of him in Luke. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 and look at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. And then it's going to go down through all these people. Let's go all the way down. It's going in reverse order. From Jesus and his father, if you will, Joseph, all the way down through Adam. So look down. Let's go down to verse 34. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. You've now swept through 39 chapters of Genesis. You guys checking that? Just right there in a half a verse. The son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Just there, we've driven through the entire Old Testament, really, but just from verse 34 on to verse 38, from Abraham's family all the way back to Adam, through Genesis 11, 10 through 26, and Genesis 5 is what Luke is picking up there. And you can count them. There's 20 sons, 20 from Adam if you will, up to Abram. And Terah is in the middle, right smack in the middle. So what I'm arguing is that the genealogies in Genesis are intentionally patterned to drive you from Adam through Noah to Abraham. And this particular genealogy is transitioning us from 2,000 plus years of global, international, if you will, world history to the history of one man, Abraham, and his family. But let me demonstrate that Genesis is arranged to drive you to Abraham and his family with two other evidences. If that wasn't enough for you, second, the table of nations in Genesis 10. Remember we went through the genealogy in Genesis 10 
And I didn't have us count the nations in Genesis 10, nor am I going to have us count the nations in Genesis 10 now, but I'll tell you how many there are. Seventy. There are 70 nations in Genesis 10. And that number of 70 nations is not just some kind of accident. As those 70 nations, if you will, represent all of humanity, those 70 nations largely descend into the abyss of sin, far from Eden, far from God. And in the midst of that, we're presented with Abraham. And Abraham's family has an interesting number of members. Look at Genesis 46. Go back to Genesis and look at Genesis 46. Genesis 46 and verse 27. And the sons of Joseph, remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph being one. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. And this is going to sum up Jacob's family and Joseph's family, which is the family of Abraham. All the persons of the house of Jacob, or Israel, the grandson of Abraham, who came into Egypt were how many? Seventy. Go to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Verse 5. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but the book of Exodus, like my Bible says, these are the names of the sons of Israel. The book of Exodus actually starts with the Hebrew word, and. It's just a continuation. Let me think about a separate book. It just starts with the word, and. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. You're being given the 12 tribes. All the descendants of Jacob, that's the family of Abraham, were how many? 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Genesis 1.28, Genesis 17, God's promise that he make Abraham's line fruitful, increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Abraham's family, in other words, what I'm driving at is Abraham's family will go on to represent a type of the new humanity coming through the seed of the woman. We will see this emphasis on a new humanity as Abraham's family grows into a nation, the nation of Israel, and that nation takes on how many elders to oversee it? Seventy. Seventy elders. Exodus 24.1. Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders go up the mountain to covenant with God. God puts his Spirit in numbers upon 70 elders who prophesy. And they're representing the new humanity, the table of nations that's gone off into wickedness. And the new humanity among them. And don't neglect this, friends. Genesis shows us that Abraham's family had 12 tribes. Remember that? 12 tribes and 70 members. Israel had 12 tribes and 70 elders. And when Jesus was ministering as the one who had the spirit without measure, he set apart 12 apostles and then sent out the 70 on mission. 
Matthew 10, Luke 10. That's no minor detail. It's no minor detail. You are being shown that the new humanity is coming through Abraham and his offspring. It's coming through Abraham and his offspring. Now a third evidence. And by the way, when you get to Acts 2, which I don't have time to, there's a table of nations present again. And the Spirit is poured out upon them and the new humanity begins. A third evidence of the genealogy of Genesis. Genealogies are driving us to Abraham as the seed of the woman. And this one's pretty straightforward. Look back at Genesis 11. Note that Genesis 12, 1 and following. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, the land I will show you. That after this genealogy, you're in Abraham's family story for the rest of Genesis. Frankly, for the rest of the Bible. In fact, that's what you're looking at in Genesis eleven twenty-seven and following as well. Abraham will become the center of the redemptive story from here forward. The genealogies are driving you to Abraham and his offspring. The seed of the woman is coming through this one. Through this one. The promise God makes to Abraham is the promise that runs through the whole Bible. We see that in spades in the New Testament. Abraham was promised the land of Canaan. It's Genesis 12, 1 3. The land of Canaan a fruitful and multiplying offspring that grows into a nation, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and Genesis 17. And that he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. He was giving those three promises. And these covenant promises to Abraham show forth in types, in pictures, if you will, for lack of a better word right now, in the Old Testament. But you see the full fulfillment of them In the New Testament, what do I mean? Children, if your dad says to you, let's say your dad says to you, kids, today when I come home, we're going to plant an oak tree. You're thinking, that's a big job. We're going to plant an oak tree. Then your dad comes home with an acorn. And he brings the acorn home and he says, we're going to plant the acorn. And now you join your dad in planting the acorn because your mom has taught you in your homeschool class that acorns grow into oak trees. And so you proceed with your father to plant the acorn knowing it will grow into an oak tree. Now your dad has kept his promise in helping you plant the acorn. But you know that in his promise there's something much greater than the acorn. His promise contains an oak tree. In the acorn, you're getting the initial form, if you will, of the promise. You're getting all the stuff from which the oak tree is coming. But you know that you're waiting for that seed to grow into a mighty tree. When Abraham was promised land, the land of Canaan, seed that would multiply into a nation, and offspring that would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. When he was promised that, he knew something about it. In the context, hear this, in the context, Abraham's promised that. In the context of the creation of the heavens and the earth, the fall 
of man into sin, the curse of death, the promise of the serpent-crushing seed of the woman. He's promised that in the context of Genesis 1 through 11. He knows that that promise to him must be far greater than the land of Canaan and the nation of Israel. While God promises Abraham the land of Canaan, and God delivers that land to Abraham's family in Joshua, Abraham believed that God was ultimately promising him the whole earth. The heavenly city of God, Romans 4.13, Hebrews 11.9-10. While God promises Abraham numerous offspring growing into a mighty nation, and God delivers that nation in Israel, in Exodus, Abraham believed that the seed of the woman, the Christ, and all those united to him through faith was the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, said Jesus. He saw it and was glad. He knew who the offspring ultimately was. God promised Abraham that he'd be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And Abraham knew that meant that through his offspring, the Christ, every tribe, tongue, and nation would come to know the blessing. I will be your God, and you will be my people. You cannot properly, please hear this, you cannot properly interpret Abraham's story if you lose sight of the context of Genesis 1 through 11 from which the story emerges. Abraham is the seed of the woman. He is the answer to everything that's gone wrong. Through him and his offspring, the salvation from the curse will come. Think of what the New Testament says about the promise being made to Abraham. When the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, takes flesh to himself, takes humanity to himself, a human nature, a human body and soul to himself, when the incarnate Son of God comes, our Lord Jesus Christ, we hear Mary and Zechariah by the Holy Spirit sing that this is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Luke 1.55 and 73. When the Holy Spirit is sent, the gift of the Father, whom Jesus is pouring out at Pentecost, beginning the age of the new creation, we hear from Paul that that is the promise given to Abraham. Galatians 3.14. Think about that. The mission of the Son of God to become incarnate, to live keep the law on our behalf, die on the cross, raise from the dead, ascend to the right hand of the Father, and reign over the whole of the creation to intercede on our behalf, to care for us, to save us. That whole mission is contained in God's promise to Abraham. The mission of the Holy Spirit sent by the Father and the Son to apply the work of Christ to bring about the new creation, to flip the eschatological calendar, if you will, from the former days to the latter days. That was contained in the promise 
to Abraham. When the mission of the Son and the Holy Spirit are found in the promise of God to you, well, friends, I can't think of any greater promises than that. And for this reason, I'm arguing that Abraham is not merely the son of Adam and Noah, but, second major point that I'll get through a little more quickly, Abraham is the father of the Christian faith. He's the father of the Christian faith. Look at Genesis 11, verse 27 32. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. That's Abram's wife. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, I want to briefly survey three reasons that I'm arguing that Abraham is demonstrated to be a man of faith. In fact, what I'm saying is that he is demonstrated to be the paradigm for a man of faith. He is the paradigmatic man of faith. Now, children, when we say someone's a paradigm, we mean they show everyone the pattern of what something is. So, for example, if if you're going to trace. You know, if I want to draw a picture, I still have to trace. You know what that means? My drawing is terrible. My best art is maybe a semi-proficient stick man, right? So if I want to draw anything decently, I have to take a, something that someone's already done, a picture or some art, and put it underneath another thin piece of paper and trace it. That picture underneath there is the pattern. That's what we mean by is the paradigm. That's what I'm saying about Abraham. He's the biblical pattern of the man of faith. Let me provide three reasons for that. First, Abraham or Abram goes west instead of east. Now, if you don't know why that's important, I'll remind you. But some of you know what that means. Abram goes west when the rest of the world is going east. Look at Genesis eleven thirty one. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans, that's in the east, Mesopotamia, To go into the land of Canaan, that's in the west. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. When you travel from Ur of the Chaldeans to Canaan, you're moving west. That's the opposite movement of those traveling east of Eden. The whole world is moving further away from the Lord's dwelling while Abraham is moving forward to it. Abram is being led by the Lord to return to the place where God dwells. Adam was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, if you remember, the mountain where God dwells. And Abraham is being taken back to God's land where God dwells. He is the answer to being booted out of God's dwelling place. He is now God's man headed back to the place 
where God dwells to be under God's blessing. Second, Abraham believed God with regard to the land. Abraham believed God with regard to the land. Now, you might wonder why is that an important point? We hear the phrase, Abraham believed God, and we tend to pass right over it. Like, okay, big deal. He believed God. But that is no small statement. Faith is the gift of God. And God gave that gift to Abraham. Listen, there are all kinds of miracles in the New Testament. The greatest miracle which Jesus does is raising a man from spiritual death to spiritual life. Being born again as a new creation is the great miracle. So when you read, and this man believed, don't slowly pass over that. That is a miraculous work of God. You also might wonder, though, well, doesn't Abraham's whole family believe God regarding the land? I mean, look, what happens? Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran. Remember, Haran is already dead by now, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Don't they all agree or believe God's promise regarding the land? The answer is emphatically no, they did not. Look at Genesis, the very last phrase again. But when they came to Haran, they did what? They settled there. Now, this movement from Mesopotamia to Haran happens after what we read in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It happens after what we read in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God made that promise, and they headed toward Canaan. Terah stopped them in Haran. Terah, Abram's father, led them to Haran and on the way to Canaan. And stopped, and then you hear this language, they settled there. And if you remember the Tower of Babel, what was the problem? They moved east, and they settled In the land of Shinar. If you remember the story of Cain, what was the problem? He went east and he settled in the land of Nod. Abraham Abraham believed God's promise, but here's what I'm saying his pagan father, Terah, did not. Now, how do I know that's what the text is saying? Why do I say Terah was a pagan? Listen to Joshua. Chapter 24 and verse 2. Joshua, chapter 24 and verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. I'm not just calling Terah a pagan. Joshua's calling Terah a pagan. Abraham's pagan father did not believe God's promise, but Abraham believed God. So while Abraham's father settled the family in Haran, the Lord eventually took Abraham to the land of Canaan. Listen to how Stephen, the first martyr in the book of Acts, 
tells the story. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. That's why I said Genesis 12, 1 to 3 comes before this. When he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. You guys hearing it? And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Abraham went out from Haran after the death of his father to the promised land. We see that in Genesis 12, 4 through 5. Look there. So Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. It's interesting because you skip from 12, 1 through 4, the whole history of stopping in Haran and living there until his father's dead. Because the point of Moses is, it's not Abraham's doing that they stopped in Haran and settled there. It's Abraham honoring his father that he stays with him until his death, and then he moves forward. But look what goes on. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the place at Shechem to the oak of Moreh, At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He believed God with regard to the land promise. And so he built an altar and worshipped. He obeyed and went forth and built an altar and worshipped. And he believed that the promise the Lord was making was greater than the land of Canaan. In other words, Abraham believed that God was bringing the new creation that redeems the old fallen world through him. How do I know that? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us how to know that. By faith, he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise. But if you remember the story of Genesis, when he gets there, he lives in tents as a foreigner. So Hebrews picks that up as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. That's the promised land, but he lives there as a foreigner in tents. For, why does he do that? Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He knew ultimately contained in the promised land of Canaan was the greater promise of the new heavens and the new earth. And he was looking forward to that. Third reason I say this is Abraham also believed God with regard to his offspring. Abraham believed God with regard to his offspring. Look at Genesis 11.30. Genesis 11.30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Think of that statement. In light of God's promise to Abraham that a great nation would come from him. Through his offspring. This little verse, if you will. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Hangs over the whole account of Abraham from Genesis 12 through Genesis 22. Hangs over the entire account. Yet, Abraham believed God 
with regard to his offspring. He believed him. After decades pass, Abraham asked God about the promise of the offspring. God's made this promise of the offspring. Abraham hasn't seen it yet, so he asks him about it. And the Lord takes him outside and reaffirms his promise, then cuts his covenant with him. Look at Genesis 15 and verse 5. And he brought him outside. That's the Lord bringing Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. This is years after not getting the offspring. What does Abram do? Verse 6. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. And God counted it to him as righteousness. Sovereign grace. Right here we see that Abraham is the father of the Christian faith. Now, so you don't just have to take my word for that. Look at Romans 4.13. Romans 4.13. Let's hear the apostle Paul. And we'll end with this passage. Romans 4.13. For the promise to Abraham... And his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, not just Canaan, notice that. That he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It did not come through Abraham's law keeping. Abraham cannot inherit all of God's blessings, which are found in dwelling with God, through law keeping. He cannot. Man is already under the curse of sin and death because of Adam. It came through the righteousness of faith. It must be by grace. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Here, listen. If you try to grab hold of God's promises by the works of the law, you'll just be condemned. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. You can only receive them by grace through faith. Abraham could only receive any promise Abraham had by grace through faith, not by works of the law. That is why, verse 16, it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace, And be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law. But also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Notice who is the what? Verse 16. Who is the father of us all. As it is written. I have made you the father of many nations. Genesis 17. In the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Do you hear it? Abraham did not earn this covenant promise by law-keeping. After the fall into sin, no man can receive any good promises through any obedience to the law for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All are under the curse. Thus, Abraham received this covenant promise by grace. He appropriated it through the instrumentality of faith. It's the way he received it. 
And thus Abraham is the father of all who believe. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Herein, Paul is pulling the threads of Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17 together and telling you that God made this covenant of grace with Abraham and Abraham believed God. Though his wife was barren, he believed God's covenant promise. Though he was old and she was past the age of childbearing, he believed God's covenant promise. Now look at Romans 4 and verse 18. In hope, here comes the application. In hope, he, that being Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. For those of you who are about 100 years old, sorry, you think what Paul thinks of your body. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. Genesis 15, 6 was not written for his sake alone. But for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So here's the application to us. Do you believe in him who delivered up Jesus? That's talking about the cross for our trespasses and raised him from the dead for our justification. He went to the cross for our sin, paying the penalty for our sin on the cross. The wrath of God that was due to us fell on him. Do you trust him? Further, he was raised for our justification. Jesus was vindicated upon his resurrection as holy, innocent, and undefiled. And his righteousness is counted to us who believe in him. So do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you recognize you're a sinner who deserves God's just wrath? Do you know you're in need of grace? Do you know you need God's grace? If so, you can know that grace is found in the covenant promise to Abraham. The covenant promise to Abraham is our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him? If not, then I exhort you to look to him and be saved. If so, then I encourage you to continue in the faith, hoping against hope in the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Sovereign grace, be encouraged. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful that in the midst of sin and death, you set apart the seed of the woman from Adam through Seth and Noah and Shem to Abraham and from Abraham 
through Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David until he came in the fullness of time, our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. We give thanks. We pray that we would trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen.